The views expressed in the following program do not necessarily represent those of the staff, management, or owners of WGBB. Live from the WGBB studios in Merrick, New York, this is Sports Talk New York. Good evening and hello again, everybody. Welcome to Sports Talk New York here on WGBB Merrick, Long Island, New York. I'm Bill Donahue, your host, taking you through the first hour on this Sunday night, the 21st day of March 2021. Our engineer, Brian Graves, is with us, as always, right across the way. And we have got a great show lined up for you tonight, as always. Up first, we'll talk to writer Gary Morgenstein about his new novel and about his new television series, both coming out this week. And we're looking forward to discussing both of these projects with Gary. In the second half, we'll really utilize radio as the theater of the mind, folks, because we'll welcome in one of our more unique guests we've spoken to, and that person is Gar Rhinus. He's otherwise known as Batting Stance Guy. So get ready for, for that, folks. Sit back, relax, get comfortable, enjoy Sports Talk 1240. Uh, no, Sports Talk New York. I'm sorry. I, I knew it would happen. And there it goes, Sports Talk New York tonight on WGBB. We've got some great people with some great stories up ahead. Just want to talk to you about social media. As always, before we begin, I invite you to follow us on our Facebook page, which is called Sports Talk New York. There you'll find show information, sports information, so much more. So stop by, click look, and then give us a like. You can also follow us on LinkedIn. And on Twitter, and you can follow me on Twitter personally, at B. Donahue, WGBB. And if you miss a show, don't fret none, because all past shows can be heard on our website. So don't worry about that. Well, our first guest, uh, his novels and plays have been featured in national media from the New York Times Entertainment Weekly, Parade Magazine, the New York Post, Sports Illustrated, and National Public Radio. His sixth novel, A Fastball for Freedom, described by, uh, as The Empire Strikes Back of, of his series, the sequel to his critically acclaimed uh, baseball science fiction, A Mound Over Hell, which is 1984 meets Shoeless Joe Jackson. That's going to be published by BHS Press on March 25th this week. In addition... The new post-pandemic play, Black and White Cookie, the author of the stage drama Saving Stan, uh, Tomato Can't Bro- Grow in the Bronx, and the off-Broadway science fi-, uh, fi rock musical The Anthem. And his new scripted series set in the tumultuous time of the 1960s called Joyland, where, where today began, began launches uh, tomorrow, Monday, March 22nd at 7 p.m. on YouTube channel Joyland, a new series. So we'll talk to him about that. Uh, I, it's a pleasure to welcome in tonight Gary Morgenstein. Gary, good evening. Good evening, Bill. Thank you for having me on. It's wonderful to have you with us, Gary. And I just want to set the record straight. Who are you a fan of these days? What teams and what players uh, are your favorites? Well, I, I kind of focus on baseball and basketball. Okay. So it's the Yankees because I grew up six blocks from Yankee Stadium, which is uh-huh. why I talk like this. <laughs> and I'm still I'm still a recovering Knicks fan, 
But I moved to, um, when, when the Nets moved to Brooklyn, uh, you know, back in 2011, I think it was, 2012, I shifted my loyalty, so I do loyalties now. Okay. So I'm looking forward to being able to go to Barclays and perhaps um, not having to sell a kidney to afford tickets. Because I looked at this, I looked at the ticket price bill, it's like $150 a ticket, and you know yeah. they get fees and tax right. and delivery. I, you know, I, I gotta tell you, the Yankees, I, I got my first Yankee tickets, uh, for a June 3rd game. And I got grandstand seats because I just like the grandstand. It's very, um, I'm a populist, so I like being, you know, the proletariat up there. Sure. And it was $44. And at least the Yankees are not gouging. Right. The fans. No, so yeah, some of these will set you back. That's that's for sure. And yeah. uh, we we really don't know how it's going to play out this year. It'll be interesting. But as you say, Gary, we're just looking forward to getting out there and watching a ball game these days. Yeah. That's the important thing. Let's talk about your your novel, A Fastball for Freedom. Uh, can you set up the world? Uh, in the Fastball for Freedom and uh, the first book, A Mound Over Hell. Well, it's 2098, and America has lost World War III, along with the West, to the um, radical Islamic Empire. Okay. And America's surrounded. And um, there's a, a new government called the Family, which is based on uh, love and family and friendships and relationships. For example, uh, you would we you would not be going on Twitter, Bill, because uh, all social media was banned mm-hmm. under the Anti-Narcissism Act. And the, the reason for that is if you believe in a society where family and friendships, real family and real friendships are paramount, then the thousand people following you on Facebook are really not your friends. Right. And so, you know, there's a lot, yeah, I mean, so there's a lot of um, patriotism is banned it, back then. Um, the entertainment industry is banned under the anti-parasite laws along with the banks. So um, what happened is this baseball has been discredited and um, associated with treason. The baseball is believed to um, be the shining example of the America, the great America, the world power, the America that we all grew up and knew, which led America down to defeat. Mm -hmm. And in 2065, there was a terrorist attack um, at Yankee Stadium, then called Amazon Stadium, between um, seventh game of the World Series between the Yankees and the Cubs. And they, um, this radical group who wanted to prosecute the war more vigorously tried to take out the government, and they failed. And all the baseball stadiums, were raised to the ground. The Hall of Fame was burnt. There were piles of books, um, all baseball books. If it was tantamount to treason, if you had baseball cards or baseball books or autographed baseballs or gloves, and there was just one sorry stadium left, Amazon Stadium in the Bronx, mm-hmm. and um, you would have usually, uh, you know, fifteen, twenty people showing up, and they had holograms running the bases because you couldn't find anyone wanting to be a baseball player. And in 2098, it's his last season ever. And lo and behold, by magic, Mickey Mantle and Ty Cobb come back. And there's a reason why um, a reviewer said it's a dystopian field of dreams. And baseball has a renaissance in, in a mound over hell, and um, led by the baseball historian Puppy Nevik. But again, it's, it, it falters at the end. Okay. And in, fa- in Fastball for Freedom, um, the main characters, two main characters, flee to England, to the um, Caliphate of England. So there we open it up. And see how baseball slowly revives itself in 2000, the 2099 season. Um, one of the differences, for example, well, they have to rebuild all the stadiums. So mm-hmm. the robots rebuild them. Oh, and for political reasons, they open in January. So you have to have, um, you know, uh, domes. You have to right. have warming igloos. Um, but you're not allowed 
to show great passion for your team because it was thought that that's what got baseball in trouble, letting fans go crazy. So there's a lot. They finally came to their senses and did away with seven-inning um, doubleheaders and you know, starting the tenth inning with the runner on base. It's, you know, when you're a novelist, you, you, you can be God a little bit and get rid of things that right. say crazy. And, but in, in a fastball for freedom, it's about baseball and faith trying to bring together the warring people. Now, and, um, also, you, you combine science fiction and baseball, Gary. How do you put the two together? Well, it's kind of rare. I'm not saying there's never been any science fiction uh, baseball novels, dystopian novels, mm-hmm. but most science fiction writers, when they look at the future, don't think baseball is going to make it. And you know what? Maybe they're right. Uh, when you know we see what's happening, to, and look, I'm a huge baseball fan. My novels are love poems to baseball. I'm sentimental. And I think to love baseball, you must be sentimental. There's a, one of the characters, set, when he goes into Fenway Park, the rebuilt Fenway Park, um, he sees the, the, the outfield for the first time, and he says, it looks like the front lawn of God. And mm-hmm. I think, you, you know, you really, to love baseball, it's different, and I, I don't want to diss any other fans for any other sports, please. That's not my intention. But there's something special about being a baseball fan and the connection to the history and the times, and the statistics, and the numbers. I mean, maybe there's many people out there who can say who passed for the most yardage in NFL history and give the number. Um, what is it, like 280,000 or something? I don't know. But, you know, <laughs> right. but, you know, with baseball, you don't struggle with that. And so this is my love poem, and I want, and, and in book two, uh, the main character, Puppy, he's kind of being used by the um, Islamic authorities uh, because he's, he's accused of, killing the leader of the United States, even though he didn't, he was set up. So he milks that. And so he gets them to let him start the Caliphate Baseball Association. Mm-hmm. So he's hoping to bring um, American players to play against um, Muslim baseball players. Right. And in the um, POW camps, uh, the American POWs were abandoned out of shame for the way we lost the war. There's all these old school baseball players in their 60s, and they're kind of chubby. But they're kind of angry. <laughs> yeah. So, um, so that's so that's the thrust and the drive. It's a it's a lot of world building, um, but baseball and faith, not religious faith. Okay, I mean, there was some of that, but not really. But it's faith in ourselves, Bill. Because you know, look around what we've just gone through and continue to go through. We have to believe in ourselves and each other. Mm-hmm. Get through it. Exactly right. We're speaking to Gary Morgenstein tonight on Sports Talk New York about his new novel, Fastball for Freedom. Now, we just spoke about the players you chose to bring back, Gary, Mickey Mantle and Ty Cobb. Why did you choose those two guys, and uh, did you consider any other players? Well, I did. I, I Originally, in the first draft, I had Reggie Jackson, and he was boring. It was just <laughs> like, oh, really? And then I considered Babe Ruth, and he was just over the top. Again, we're going into a society where you would not um, pinch a woman's butt. <laughs> mm-hmm. it was, you know, it, it was just anathema to that. Um, and so people like, you know, Ty, um, Mickey Mantle would have a little trouble in that world. And Ty, almost all the main characters in, in my novel are diverse, because this is the 22nd century, and that's going to uh, look a lot like the face of the United States. And so when Ty, you know, walks around and he's he's with the white people, you know, there's mm-hmm. there's a ricochet shot of that, and it's interesting how they interact, and um, you know, the fact that religion is banned 
in this America, which, you know, flips Ty Cobb out. Uh, you know? And right. then it's like, what happened to my money? Okay, the Jews stole my money. So, <laughs> so you know, you want the interaction, but over time, and it's certainly into book two, um, they become co-commissioners of baseball. So it's you, you needed that. I mean, that's the beauty of baseball. Uh, unfortunately, no one knew who Babe Ruth, uh, who Ty Cobb, and Mickey Mantle were really, mm-hmm. uh, because all the history books, the baseball history books, were confiscated. In fact, when they start to rebuild all the, the um, ballparks for the 2099 season, they really have a lot of trouble to find pictures. Yeah, uh, and rightfully so. Now, you showcased, uh, as we said, uh, the hallowed cathedral in the Bronx in a mound over hell, uh, the, your previous work. Why did you choose to turn the spotlight then on Fenway Park in Boston? I think there are three hallowed cathedrals in baseball. There's Yankee Stadium, there's Fenway Park, and there's Wrigley Field, which will be have the spotlight in book two, which I'm writing now with Doug After Peace, okay. uh, you know, the concluding novel in the trilogy. And I have great reverence for um, the Red Sox and Fenway Park and their organization and their history. Look, I'd like the Yankees to beat them, but I, I think at the end of the day, what's most important is that we're all baseball fans, and we keep baseball alive. And baseball, I think, is a little under siege, and it's slipping. And it's not fast-paced, as we well know. Uh, and I think the more baseball fans could lean into it and lean into the love and uh, you know, get at the love of baseball and what it really means to this country and society, I think it'll help the game long-term. Now, I just want to uh, let the audience know where they can get a fastball for freedom, Gary. Pretty much anywhere. It's uh, You go to Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Bookshop, or you walk into your local um, bookstore, and they'll order it for you. Outstanding. Okay, that, that's great right there. Now, I want to move on while we still have time to Joyland, your TV series. I know there was supposed to be a young lady joining us tonight on the program yeah. as well. Talk a little bit about her and uh, her role in Joyland. Yes, um, Ellen Adair is one of the stars, uh, and, and I thought she'd have a great fun here. She's on set filming a show, so she has to wake up at 4 in the morning oh, tomorrow, boy. so I just couldn't. Yeah, I know. Oh, yes, right. <laughs> so, but Ellen is a huge Red Sox and Phillies fan. Huge. The fact that she is actually working on the series, I guess, is testament to the fact that she likes the script <laughs> and the character. <laughs> but Joyland, uh, you know, the 19, it's, it's the, we try to do the 1960s as it hasn't been seen before. And we set it in, um, in the north, in Brooklyn and a, bung- and a bungalow colony in the Catskill Mountains. Uh, where, uh, you know, I don't know how many listeners are aware of that, but for decades, um, working class and middle class, uh, New Yorkers escaping the, you know, the heat in the city, uh, mainly Jewish would go to the Catskills. So we wanted to, um, look at the 60s because so much of what happens today started in the 60s or was certainly unresolved. Uh, in episode 101 begins with, um, a cop killing an unarmed African American teenager and there's riots. Well, hello. You know, how far have we moved? But what we try to do is we look at ordinary people swept up in extraordinary times. And our two main characters, Marty Dent is a former Knicks player, and he dreams of getting an ABA franchise uh, and bringing it to Brooklyn to save his city. Because as we remember, in the 60s, New York City, you know, under later under John Lindsay, would start circling the drain. Mm-hmm. And sports brought us together, certainly at least for a moment, 
with the Knicks and the, and, and the Mets and the, and the Jets. And so he, want, so he has, you know, a long shot dream. And his best friend, um, Reverend Julian Bass, an African American, is fighting the fight um, as a minister of the First Church of Christ, which um, has a, an aging um, congregation. And so you have, so we look at the class of the 60s, and we look at the little guys and the little girls fighting back against the establishment. And you don't often see that, for example, with the ABA. Uh, often the ABA is depicted comically, if not farcically, or, you know, Will Ferrell's movie, semi-pro. Um, but mm-hmm. think back, why was there a need to be the ABA? Because the NBA players hadn't unionized yet. Because the American Basketball League had been crushed by the NBA. Because you had the power structures and the power brokers who would not let go of their monopoly. And you also had the unspoken quotas on the um, NBA teams. You're only going to have so many blacks. Uh, look, we, we said it in the North because obviously the real horror in the 60s was in the South, but I think the North also gets a pass too often for um, segregation. And if uh, someone once showed me um, attendance figures in the 60s for the Boston Celtics where they averaged like 7,000 people, something 8,000, something mind-blowing, Bill. Now, how can you not go see Bill Russell, Bob Cousy, you know, Sam Jones, Casey Jones, on and on, unless you had trouble with the team. Mm-hmm. And so, so we cut, you know, we, 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 we lean into that. And so it's going to be, um, a social structure, but again, entertaining. Uh, we, it's the start of the women's rights movement. We have very strong women, um, uh, Julian's wife is, um, the first black assistant principal. And my um, co-creator and co-writer Russell Friedman and I were very careful to always research. And you know, one time I remember I was writing a script and I texted Russell. I said, "Wait, did we have Tab in 1964?" <laughs> because you know, <laughs> yeah, we had Tab. I said, "Okay, fine, good." Yeah. I'm sure there's going to be something we miss, but we really try to be as as accurate as as we can and look at the little people, the working class, the middle class coming up against the upper class, both black and white. Well, I've seen the first episode, and I think you guys have done that. We have with us tonight Gary Morgenstein. We're talking about his new scripted TV series, Joyland, set in in the 60s. Now, how is it different from other shows that have touched on the 60s, Gary? Well, because we um, we have the bungalow colony, so we try to uh-huh. have that kind of calm, serene look. We also don't have people... We, people suffer prejudice but they fight back and there's no doubt about it we have very strong characters and we try to have an ensemble and look at the sweep of the times and we're also very positive uh despite the ugliness you know history is very ugly and i think so all too often when we're afraid to touch history just because of that well you know if you try to explain history why something happened you're agreeing with it well no but we need to understand and what we want to do especially in these times is to show positive relationships people trying to come together not you know schmaltzy at all but just regular human human beings uh, i think a lot of television nowadays goes the, the characters the anti-heroes go over the top mm-hmm. and you kind of lose the sense of just being regular people and I think what we really have here are regular people, not all at all, very complicated, very flawed. There's good and bad. Like all of us, we all have done things. We said, oh, 
Todd. What did I do? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I hope no one ever finds that out, right? Exactly, um, yeah. But, you know, you know, trying to work together. Right. And I like the fact, Gary, that you do delve into the ABA. As my listeners uh, know very well, I am uh, very familiar and I publicize the plight of the ABA ball players. Uh, I've had Darnell Hillman, uh, George McGinnis on the program, Dr. J, Bob Nedelicki. Uh, I, I really enjoy the ABA. I mean, who didn't as a kid? Who didn't like the, uh, the run and gun style and the three pointers and the red, white and blue ball? Uh, it, it was really, something to witness back in those days for a kid. Now, did you consider casting any uh, former ball players in the program? We are, yes. Aha, uh-huh. okay. Offline. I, yes, we have some roles where, which would be great for former ABA players, you know, older. Uh, we In episode um, 102, we have a Connie Hawkins character. We have Ned Irish. And we have Bob Cousy. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we're looking, they don't only have to be cast in baseball related because we're looking at episode 103 um, a, a former player but yes we would love to cast and I think what you know when you talk about the plight of former ABA players and what um, the Dropping Dimes Foundation has done to fight their battle is just wonderful that's true they're a great organization Dropping Dimes uh, thank you for mentioning that Gary for sure now are you hoping that Joyland will become a, a traditional te- television series yes we, we, we had this mad vision, and we thought, okay, what if we simply blow it all up and change the rules about how to develop a television series? It's a pandemic. I mean, what other choice do we have but to use the Zoom medium, which we do, and we produce it, you know, to as much as we can, but I think it looks, as you know, you saw it, it looks a lot different than just your typical Zoom meeting, um, you know, conference call. And then we want to, we're going to show um, all eight episodes of season one monthly, beginning tomorrow on our um, YouTube channel, Joyland, a new series. Mm-hmm. That, that'll that be premiering tomorrow night, Joyland. Now, I just wanted to ask you, Gary, we, we, everything's been, been baseball. This is basketball. Why did you choose to go with basketball as the theme in Joyland? Because I love basketball. Okay. Because I, I, in the 60s, I was a, you know, I just hung out. I used my geo card in the old garden. I mean, I remember Tom Stiff and Willie Knowles when I was a little kid. You know, my parents didn't know where I was disappearing, <laughs> you know, <laughs> um, for, for a day game. So I just always loved basketball. And then, of course, you know, the great um, Willis Reed and, you know, all Wolf Frazier, on and on. Uh, so I just love basketball. And it just, it, it, it seems like the best place on a smaller scale in terms of number, number of players to bring African Americans and whites together in a common course. Definitely, yeah, and you succeeded in that. Now, again, tomorrow night, it is March 22nd, Monday evening, 7 p.m. Eastern Time. For you folks uh, that are listening online, it's Eastern Time, 7 p.m. The YouTube channel is uh, Joyland, a new series. Uh, Make sure you check that out. And also, Gary's novel, A Fastball for Freedom, that's going to be published on March 25th. You can get that. Uh, Barnes and Noble, Amazon, please give that a look. And I'd like to know, Gary, we mentioned a few things. What's coming up, uh, on, on your docket? Can you tell us anything about what you're looking at down the line? Well, I'm looking to finish Joylet, season one. Right. Okay. Writing furiously mm-hmm. and promoting it and casting and working 
with um, a, a brilliant director, Damone Serafin, and um, our tech producer and editor, um, Paul Litwak. It's just a genius. The stuff that he managed to do on Zoom is simply remarkable. And we have an international cast. We have actresses from London to um, Los Angeles and Chicago. So these people clearly must like it because they're giving of their time. And we've got, you know, not Ellen Adair. We have um, Bernard Dotson, who originated five Broadway musical roles. You just go on and on. The quality, it's, it's really all there. Well, Ellen Adair, uh, tell, tell the folks, Gary, where the, they've seen Ellen before. What shows has she been on? She's been on um, The Sinner, Billions, mm-hmm. Homeland, are among um, some of her, her, her big roles. And uh, I saw her tweeting out today. She was very happy that J.T. Riamuto was back in the lineup for the <laughs> Phillies. And uh, I, I just wanted to ask her, though, how do the Phillies and the Red Sox fit together? That's what I want to know. Why, why she chose those two clubs? That's a good question. I don't know if I want to speak for her, but I'm <clears> guessing that something which was anti-New York. Because okay, you know, there's yeah. a rivalry with the Mets. And then, okay, if now we're in the American League and why not the Red Sox? So she, you know, she's <laughs> right. nice saying this, but you know, it's she calls Yankee Stadium the bunker on River Avenue. She said, "No, I never said that." I said, "Yeah, you, you did. I, I saw you write it down. I, I tweet that. So come on, don't. That's all right. You can." <laughs> but well, she's mainly a big Phillies fan. She did a wonderful, a viral video mm-hmm. um, a month or so ago um, when, when they when they re-signed uh, Real Muto. Real Muto. Right. Um, it was her dancing. It was uh, priceless. Well, we hope to have Ellen uh, on the show down the road, folks, to yeah. talk uh, not only about Joyland but about the Phillies and the Red Sox and find out yeah. uh, what the reason for the connection there is. Yeah. But I just wanted to repeat, Gary Morgenstein with us tonight, a uh, very talented gentleman. A Fastball for Freedom is his new novel, published uh, March 25th, this week. Watch for that on Barnes & Noble uh Amazon you can you can check that out also tomorrow evening March 22nd 7 p.m. Eastern Time YouTube channel Joyland a new series that uh is something to be looked at tomorrow night uh looking forward to it I've seen the first episode folks and you really don't want to miss it uh, these guys have done a tremendous job any final words Gary No thank you so much I hope everyone will join us Thank you so much for having me on, Bill. Wonderful. That's Gary Morgenstein, folks. Uh, up next on Sports Talk New York, we will uh, remember imitating the batting stances of your favorite players playing wiffle ball. Remember that in the backyard? This man takes it to a whole nother level. We're going to speak with Gar Rhinus. He's better known as Batting Stance Guy. He's going to join us in a minute, so stay with us, folks. Listening to Sports Talk New York. Tune in every Sunday night at 8 p.m. on Long Island's WGBB. Broadcasting on 95.9 FM and 1240 AM. Or listen live online at WGBBradio.com. Stay connected to Sports Talk New York on WGBB by following us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at WGBB Sports Talk. You're listening to Sports Talk New York on Long Island's WGBB. And now, 
back to the show. All right, folks, we're back with Sports Talk New York here on WGBB from beautiful downtown Merrick, Long Island. It looks like spring has finally sprung here on Long Island. Uh, spring training in Florida and Arizona in full swing. Been watching the Mets uh, from Port St. Lucie, picking up some games from Arizona on the MLB channel. Uh, hopefully it's a harbinger of things to come and uh the memories of green grass and high blue skies are in our future, and uh, we can get out to a ball game hopefully this this summer and uh, change it up from last year and uh, look at the positive side of things. Well, let, let's keep the sports memories rolling along here. Our next guest, of course, we remember playing wiffle ball in the street or in the backyard. We all have imitated the batting stance of the stars of the day, your favorite team's lineup. Always some great ones that, that we remember. I, I remember doing Don Clendenin, Willie Stargell, Joe Morgan. But this gentleman takes it to a whole nother level, making it uh, really an art form. Let's welcome in the batting stance guy, Mr. Gar Rhinus. Gar, good evening. Good evening. Thanks for having me, Bill. Appreciate it. Wonderful, wonderful to have you along with us tonight, Gar. Looking forward to, and really looking forward to testing the folks' sense of the theater of the mind here as far as radio goes. And uh, we're going to delve into that a little further. I just want to clear up as a kid or even as an adult now, favorite teams, favorite players. All right, favorite team, favorite player. First favorite team, favorite player was the Montreal Expos. My, my, I grew up in Northern okay. California. And my mom went to high school with their shortstop in the early 80s and late 70s, Chris Spire. Gotcha. And yeah. so we, knew, we quote unquote, knew a pro player. Now he's in Montreal, <laughs> yeah. so it wasn't like I saw him, but it just felt so surreal to actually know a real human that was a pro. And so I loved that early 80s. And then when he started getting, like, moving around, was about the time for some bizarre reason I fell in love with the Kent. Herbeck, Minnesota Twins. For, yeah. I have, I to this day, I can't figure out why. <laughs> yeah, Dude, this is some great names there. Chris Spire, I remember him as a giant with yeah. uh, with uh, who else was on the team? Dave Kingman. Jeez. Uh, uh, well, when you name drop Don Clendenin, yeah, that, that outed you having like an Earthlink email account. That put you so <laughs> old. Oh yeah. You would only know. You would only. You're. You're still renting videos at Blockbuster. You are. You are. <laughs> I'm a dinosaur guard. Yeah. You remember Chris Fire being a? I believe he was a rookie All Star. This is like yeah. before I was born. But yes, he was. <laughs> you got it. Yeah. There was Don Clinton. I knew the whole Mets batting order back then. Cleon Jones, yeah. Tommy Agee, Jerry Grody, Buddy Harrelson. The whole bunch, and uh, even the opposition, because we got a chance to see them. Uh, There was television back then, Gar, before you mentioned it. Um, Guys like Ernie Banks, Lou Brock, uh, of course, Stargell with the windmill was was taking care of business in in Pittsburgh. Now, the beginnings, uh, it looks like from your book and and from your YouTube channel, of course, uh, began with Wiffle Ball, right? Of course, yeah. Yeah. So, so New York actually plays a role in this story because, of course, I grew up in Northern California, 
And there's just, uh, you know, the Joe Montana and the Niners were winning a bunch of championships. There were, there was the, the Golden State Warriors had three guys that combined to score over 75 points a game. There was just other things going on than the kind of nerd out baseball. And so, and then I went to college at Syracuse mm-hmm. and it was, it was there when we would be playing wiffle ball and someone would ask for like, all right, you be the 86 Mets, you be Dykstra. And then I would be Dykstra and people would be like, <laughs> yeah. that, what? That's even the face he made. That really looks like, it. I literally didn't know until college that I even did this. Yeah. Because no one, <laughs> it was like if a, if a whatever, you know what in the woods, does it make a sound? <laughs> like yeah. I had no idea that this was like a thing that I could do accurately because no one around, I mean, I would have been better like, imitating like Miss Saigon musical numbers than than actual like sports. Yeah, you know? and, and get some monetary uh, assistance. I, I understand what you're saying. But uh, as we said, everybody did it, but you you yeah. were taking it uh, to another level as uh, as an art form. Let's talk about some of the guys that you do and you do well. First yeah. of all, right off the bat, if I can uh, use that pun, Kevin Euclid, I mean, this yeah. guy, this guy is unreal with, with the, unreal. Way, the way he holds the bat. And that that's just a guy that uh, deserves to be imitated. <laughs> yeah, so there's some players in Japan years ago that would have two hands on the bat, but there would be a huge gap in between. And there's, like, old photos of Ty Cobb doing that. But, yeah, right. he basically had his hands separate, but then – stood like Julio Franco pointing the, the tip of the bat back toward the pitcher. Um, and it looks like I've put him up to doing something to try to make my daughters laugh. <laughs> yeah. That's how, that's how it looks from, you know, at this point now that people know what I'm doing kind of in my sphere, they'll go to a game and then now it's like I have henchmen. People will text me being like, hey, what is did you tell Moise Salou to do that with his knees or like, or what? <laughs> like, yeah. Why does Bernard Span point his toe back towards, like, are, are these guys like doing it to get your attention now? Or are they actually, does this help them? Yeah. <laughs> like how Matt Williams used to like rub his chin on his shoulder, you know, between each pitch. Um, you're about to see one in New York this year. If Jay Bruce makes the team, Jay Bruce does this thing where right before the pitch comes, He'll throw his left hand up. He'll like take it off his bat, and it looks like he's calling for time. Yeah, well, we between, had him with the Mets for a while, Gar. Yeah, so oh, we yeah. know. Yeah, That's exactly. Right. It's, it's these like bizarre things that only. I mean, maybe a maybe somebody shooting a free throw is that you're that much focus on like all eyes on the one person. Um, but yeah, that's how. Euclid um, got my attention real early, and it just happened to be total dumb luck that at the moment Euclid comes up, this thing called YouTube is invented, and somebody that knows more about I don't know internet and media than I do asked if he could if I could imitate a bunch of Red Sox for him, so he could send it back to his buddies. I literally thought he was going to like send a VHS back to brookline mass to his friends uh-huh. i had no idea and so he yeah he put it on this thing called youtube and i was like what's that and then yeah just ran from there bill simmons put it on his page on espn to that that page and then um yeah teams started having me out to imit- to entertain the the teams like in the clubhouse and on the field 
banana. You, you were like the the modern day Max Max Patkin. Yeah, car. Yeah, yeah. yeah for sure. Totally. Now, uh, obviously, you've been been on MLB. You've been on mm -hmm. uh, Letterman. I got to ask you before we go any further. What kind of reaction? Uh, have you gotten from guys uh, positive? Any any negative at all? I'd like to know that. Yeah. So so luckily the the negative. I, I think any especially as dudes, like anything we know about ourselves, like any self awareness, came from eight of our friends in junior high all laughing at us. <laughs> to where we're like, wait, what? What do I do? You know, like if all your friends are laughing at you, it's like, wait, maybe I do something. That why are they all laughing? Why do, do I? Well, I move my legs like that, or I, you know what I mean? So, so generally what happens is if I'm in a team situation, someone will call out a name and then I'll imitate that player. And I'm overdoing it. It's not just like how they hold their bat. It's their facial expression. It's like puffing out their chest a little too far, um, or making them more effeminate or making them like a robot or whatever the, whatever the thing is, it's just totally exaggerating them. Yeah. And so what I found is that Often a player will look and think like, wait, I don't do that, but he'll turn and 18 of his teammates are all laughing, pointing at him. So he'll be like, <laughs> I don't, what? I don't, I don't have muscles in my neck like that. Like, most players don't see themselves as they really are. Yeah. So that is hysterical. The one time that it was just me and a player and then a bunch of trainers was, it, it was with Derek Cheater, oddly enough, where he trains down in Tampa. Um, there's a bunch of players that all train and he goes there super early in the morning. And I just happened to be meeting a friend that was at his like training facility there. And so they called him in and said, Hey, Jeter wants to see you. And so I go in there and get introduced to him. And he's like, all right, let me see me. And I, and I run through, you know, he like calls for time with his wrist, not really with his hand. And then, um, the, he does this little nod before the first pitch. And then when he takes the pitch, he like sticks his face almost in the glove. And then when he hits the ball, he'll, he'll, he'll slam the bat down kind of toward the first base dugout. All things he's like, I don't do any of those things. And all the <laughs> trainers were looking like, wait, does he have, does he not know? So, you know, when you're doing an imitation, there's one other person there and they don't think it's like, what are you going to do? Get an argument? Yeah, you yeah do, right. You know, so, so cut to five years later, it's his last year. We're in Houston. The Yankees have me out to entertain the team on their team dinner before opening day. Cheaters last year. And so, I come out on stage and say basically, hey, Derek, congratulations on a great career. Hey, you guys, help me out here. Derek had me imitate him for him, and he said I don't, he, I don't do it like he really does. So let me know where I go wrong. And so as I do it, the place is like, it's like the Blues Brothers church scene. So like <laughs> guys are doing backflips in the aisle. Carlos Beltran is literally a punching cheater, and like the Baffy is jumping up and high-fiving Francisco Cervella. It's just, oh, it's like a, carnival in there it was it was so bananas and then finally at the end he came up he's like okay maybe i i guess whatever i guess you're right <laughs> <laughs> so that was like to, and each row was even in there i mean it was nuts it was such a fun fun group and obviously like i'm just like you i'm just like everybody listening i just i'm just like a nerd who loves sports and wasn't good enough to play at the highest level so so to so to be able to even know how Jeter would react to him, it's just like yeah. crazy. That's a, a, a super niche that, that you carved out for yourself there, Gar. I know, uh, what they should realize is, is like uh, the famous saying that 
uh, imitation is the sincerest form of flattery, you know, and you've got all these guys down to a T. And uh, it, it reminds me, I, I just, uh, it just popped up in my mind. I don't know if you've ever seen it, but uh, during a rain delay, Robin Ventura oh, yeah. does Piazza, right? Yeah. And he, it, it's and to a T. He had everybody rolling. And do you see that? I mean, the, the, the players were loving it. Yeah. You know, they, they, everyone's on the top step, and they, like, cannot get enough. And it's <laughs> yeah. so funny. And actually... What's funny is if you watch that imitation of Ventura, he, the the way he, um, his wrists, right, <laughs> so yeah, the way he's like calling for time, in the way like Piazza, so nonchalant, yeah, bend his <laughs> bend his wrist and then like just like puff out his jersey, kind of where the where the buttons are, like right before because <laughs> you know he had so many muscles, they just kind of get in the way. Um, <laughs> Oh yeah, that was a crack. I mean, Rick Dempsey did it on these old like oh, yeah. in baseball. I remember Dempsey even pretended to be Robin Yount. Um, yeah, on on a tarp, and then Sammy Stewart put on the um, uh, what are those underwear that Jim Palmer always uh, jockey so jockey shorts? Yeah, <laughs> he, yeah. So Sammy Stewart pretended to be Jim Palmer and put on like these jockey underwear. <laughs> Went out on same thing on a during a rain delay in I guess Baltimore maybe it was Milwaukee um, yeah it's so fun and Mark Grant who's the announcer of the Padres I remember on the old This Week in Baseball he would imitate all of the announcers so he'd be like Dutch Renard and Eric Gregg and yeah, yeah. It's so it's so fun and built for what's been really fun on so so I've been in the clubhouse with about half the team and what's what's incredibly fun because i was the last guy on the bench on my high school team <laughs> is is going down in there and then people obviously call out the the big guns you know the mvps and the okay do this guy do this guy but then what's really fun is that someone will call out the 24th guy on the lineup or the 25th guy the guy who's barely there and he'll be embarrassed because he's like no that guy's you know batting chance guy's not going to know me and then if i've done so the all the research i'm doing whenever i'm going on the field is always for the last three or four guys on the team. Now, I mean, I already know how to do the, the cheaters or the Teixeiras, you know. Sure. But, like, I, but the last guy on the team, um, who, by the way, often becomes really good, like five years later. But um, So to, to have the imitation of that person down is has been fun because it's like I'm trying to honor. I'm not trying to, like, get a laugh and, like, inject steroids in my arm or whatever. I'm, <laughs> I'm just trying to, like, honor the guys that are there. And so even if you're the last guy on the team you just got called up, and I do an imitation because I found the footage from like AAA video or something. Um, it's it's weird. It's like gone a long way. Those players have literally asked me to like MC their charity event later. It's weird. It's very endearing because they're like, I was just so That's touched great. that you yeah. knew who I was, let alone did the imitation. We're speaking tonight with batting stands guy, Mr. Gar Rhinus, and. Uh, we had spoke briefly about this gentleman before, but he, here's another exaggerated stance. It's Julio Franco, the guy who played until oh, yeah. he was about 75 years old. Um, <laughs> he's, I'm surprised, uh, I'm actually older than him too, Gar. So there's another hey, example. They, yeah. they, jury's out on whether that's true. <laughs> yeah. he, he was always, he, his rookie year, he was either 14 or 31. Yeah. There's still some debate on how old he actually was. Because I, I think if you if you saw this last year, 
there's some like viral video footage of him taking batting practice because I think he's been a, a hitting coach in South Korea and he still looks great. Like hitting, yeah. he's still in unbelievable shape. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, I've seen photos of him now. Uh, we spoke a little bit about Ichiro too. He's pretty easy mm-hmm. to do, right? Yeah, with with Ichiro, it's a whole um, it's a whole routine. So you um, you put your feet almost like a duck, kind of like out and and sitting down like a catcher, and then you stand up and you do this like Pilates routine where you put your knees as far out as possible and move your shoulders back and forth. And then when you get up to the box, you do this like hold the bat out kind of samurai. Yeah. And then you tug the sleeve. So here's the craziest part. Back to that day, Cheater's last opening day in Houston. So I'm on the – so we do the whole night and do a bunch of imitations, and that's pretty fun. So then I I get on the field, and Ichiro walks by – this is BP – and he kind of gets my attention, and there's some, like, you know, Houston investment bankers or, you know, whoever's down on the field before. And they look, and they're like, wait, do you know him? And then Reggie Jackson waves because he was at the dinner the night before. And then Ichiro grabs a couple players, and he starts doing my imitation of them back to me. Wow. <laughs> well, that's like a tribute car. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and then and then here's the craziest part. So Ichiro gets in the in the elevator um the night before. I wasn't sure he'd remember me because I have a hat on backwards and then by that time I have no hat on. I'm not wearing the same thing because they gave me a Yankee jersey to put on. So I'm wearing like normal clothes. So I get in the elevator and there's a bunch of his hand lawyers. And at this point he's a total celebrity. So they were like trying to keep people out of the hotel elevator to get his autograph or whatever so i'm in the elevator with him because i have a room in that same place and then i look at him and he looks back and he smiles so i think oh cool maybe he knows me and then bill i kid you not he he says dante bichette <laughs> so it's like wait okay i'll be, so all the people in major league history that <laughs> he wants me to imitate first of all i don't even know if he knows who i am then he he called out like, a, a random Rocky from the 90s. Yeah, he's, he's making requests. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, of course. That's a, you gotta be ready. You think like, okay, well, I'm going to Yankees. I gotta prep for Yankees. But when you're actually with players, often they will call out somebody that's like on the Diamondbacks bench. And you're like, wait, what? And you're like, oh, we went to college together. I'm like, oh my gosh. I, don't, I did not know to prep yeah. for Augie Ojeda, you know. <laughs> or like whoever you were friends with in college, you know that that. So Ichiro calling out Dante Bichette, luckily. That's and, a and highlight. It, yeah, that's a career yeah. highlight, Gar, for sure. <laughs> now we, we spoke about the different eras that we we come from with the Don Clendenin <laughs> reference. Um, who is the oldest guy that you do, and how did you uh, get a hold of uh, footage of like, let's say? Dick McAuliffe, who who was uh, yeah. a great one from when I was a kid. Yeah. So when so Simon and Schuster had me write this fun book of like the fifty greatest dances of my lifetime, and so um, I went back as far as my brain realistically like saw players. So anyone that was playing in nineteen eighty, I would have like organically seen them play. Right. Um, but but all the players that that retired about the time Roy White did. Or Lou Brock, I just I didn't really see him organically. So if they have if there's like World Series footage, of course I could I could see him. And then as I started making the rounds with teams, of course people that were a little bit older would say, 
you got to look up this guy Bobby Tolan. You got to look up this guy Dick McAuliffe and uh, West Covington. It was the same number of people <laughs> that that like Skip Bayless would ask for, you know, or that certain. And then I remember then doing Letterman as they were as they had up us on the producer brought us out on stage to be like, okay, be you know, here's where you're going to be if he wants you to imitate some people, come over here. And the camera crew was like. Give me Joe Pepitone. Yeah. <laughs> We're saying, like, hey, I was born in 73. I'm not actually 73. Yeah, I don't, yeah like, right. I don't want to know guys from, from, like, my dad's era. Uh, That's so another yeah, great so like, one. Peppy, yeah, I remember d- doing him. And I, I remember doing Mantle, too. I mean, uh, well, that, that was remember, a classic. Remember, everybody had, like, three channels. So we would, like, go out front and actually, like, play stickball. You right. Know? There was no... There was no like video game option or whatever. So, no, yeah, you were outside. Yeah, we were outside playing and imitating, and I, I, you know, again, I, I would sure I would pretend to be Eric Davis and pretend to be um, Mackie Sasser and pretend to be all these guys, but I, you know, I, nobody on the other end was like, "Hey, that loop you do, that really does look like Mackie Sasser." <laughs> no, yeah, from as you say, Gar Gar Rhinus with this batting stance guy tonight on Sports Talk New York. Um, even the pitching I used to do. I, I had yeah. Seaver down, Kuzman, Nolan Ryan, mm-hmm. all those guys. But uh, one guy you just mentioned is is a classic guy to imitate, Roy White. Mm, yeah. Yeah, the, the, the fun part about being on the field is um, I thought what would be the biggest deal would be you're around – Mike Trout, you're around Ryan Howard, you're around Ronald Acuna Jr., you're around these like, Pete Alonzo, these are stars, they're MVPs and they're stars, but what's crazy is, I would go down on the field, and then the players would all like, semicircle around me, and then I would look over to the right, and sitting on like a golf cart as the like, assistant bench hitting base coach is like, you know, 70-year-old Hal McRae. And I'd be like, whoa, that's Hal McRae. Yeah. So, like, Roy Whites of the world, to me, are a bigger deal than, like, literally the, whatever MVP I'm meeting who's a peer or even, like, 15 years younger. It's those guys. And, I mean, they could have been terrible. Now, Hal McRae was good, but, like, they, it could have been Brian Doyle, Jim Spencer, Rob Picciolo. I mean, like, just guys I had baseball cards of. I just couldn't believe I was meeting them. Like Mike Aldretti, Dave McKay. I remember at the height of Steven Strasburg's fame, the absolute peak when he was, when it was like impossible to get a ticket. He's walking toward the bullpen and I'm emceeing Ryan Zimmerman's MS fundraiser at Nats Park. And so I'm there at one of the games. And as he's walking out, he's standing with his pitching coach, Steve McPatty. Again, this is the height of Strasburg's fame. And as they're walking out, I yell out, no way, Steve McCaddy? And they both turned to me stunned, like, wait, he's the celebrity. Why are yeah. you? Yeah. you do? Because I grew up in Oakland. He was on the 81 Oakland A's. I remember him. I was like, wow. I, I, like, I was more excited to, to see Steve McCaddy than I was <laughs> to see Steven Strasburg because I'm just a sure. dorky baseball fan. You know, yeah. that, like collected cards and, and a card I have somebody 8 o'clock, even though he's probably like selling life insurance and Visalia, you know what I'm saying? But to me, he's just a legend because I had his baseball card at eight. I, I agree, Gar. I mean, as, as the host of this show, I'll have on guys like that 
and uh, the younger guys who work at the station are like, yeah. you know, who who was that? You know, why yeah. is he well, having this guy? Like, why do you have Jimmy MVPs? Qualls? You know, yeah, totally. They'll be like, how many MVPs did he win? It's like, well, it's not. I mean, like. You could still have value and not have won an MVP, you know. Don't you realize uh, Kurt Bavakwa is the guy that got cursed out by Tommy Lasorda? That's oh, all God. over YouTube. You never heard of Kurt Bavakwa, guys? Come on. <laughs> <laughs> the thing That's about Roy good. White, too, Gar, is Roy White yeah. was, uh, he was a switch hitter and mm -hmm. he was different from both sides of the plate. Yeah, I saw he, he would, there were there was some footage, and Roy White's actually in the book that I wrote as, like, the baseball before my time. It's, like, the McAuliffe and the Stan Musial and the Willie McCovey's, like, follow-through is famous. And, um, but, yeah, the, the way that Roy White would bend way over in the footage, because, you know, the I've seen a bunch of footage of 76 through 79 or 78 playoffs because, he's in, you know, he's in the postseason. He's, like, a fixture. The Yankees just kept playing pretty much the Royals. They kept playing over yeah. and over and over again in the postseason. Yeah, he was he was pretty good. But yeah, the, it's the guys that that retired in '79. So so when I know like Stargell and Bench and Joe Morgan, a lot of times it's because they just kind of bled over into the early '80s enough that I saw them as you know I don't know people that were playing when I was. Paying attention. In in the book too, the the book is called Batting Stance Guy: A Love Letter to Baseball. Uh, you can find that uh, on Amazon for sure. Mm -hmm. One interesting thing that I read in the book are was you talk about the great Rod Carew. Now Rod Carew is a Hall of Famer, but he 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 wasn't a fly by night. This guy won seven batting championships, yeah. uh, three thousand hits. Uh, you put him up there with Gwynn and guys like that. Oh, yeah. Would you say if he was any more relaxed, he'd be asleep? <laughs> right? Yeah. Yeah. On, on Letterman, I even said, uh, if, if you watch, very often between the first and second sets, he would fall asleep in the box. He like, wouldn't even get out of the box. Games, it was like a Mark Burley game whenever Carew was there because he just stayed in the box and just hit. And <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Carew's, Carew's great. And he, so Rod, Peter Gammons once told me that, he talked to Yastrzemski about how every year Carl would switch his stance a little bit. And I know Ripken, he would switch his stance like mid-game. And Carew, you know, for people that remember him from Minnesota, his bat was more kind of up and down. It still was loose, but it was up and down. But by golly, early to mid-80s, I mean, he was just laying it flat on the on the Angels. He was right, like yeah. Sleepy. Whereas, you know, Yaz was his if, – if people are from the 60s – you know, they'll be like, oh, you're doing Yaz wrong. Look, 1967, look at his hands over his head. <laughs> yeah. But by 83, I mean, he was like curled up into a ball. He had the big ear hole in this, like a ball could fit through that ear Yeah, glass. it was like custom was like made. Leaning, yeah. <laughs> it was like leaning way over, you know. Kent Herbeck, same. He was like, at you know, 215, his hands were over his head. And at 300, he was like hunched over like he was. You know, Phil Plantier. Amazing. Well, Gar Reines, it's been a pleasure having you with us tonight. Thanks for taking time out of your Sunday night to spend some with us up here on Long Island. Uh, any anything you want to plug last minute? Um, if you're on Twitter, I'm at Batting Stance G. Instagram Batting Stance Guy. I'm on Cameo. If you want to get something for your 
kid or for your uncle or for your team. Uh, that's a, been a really fun way to connect with people where you get kind of like personal shout outs. And then yeah, order the book and, um, and message me online on any, any way you can. And, and by the way, go buy a wiffle ball. Go outside <laughs> yeah. and, and play. Eat a bunch of Fruit Loops and go be Mickey Tuttleton in your backyard <laughs> for the kid. What, what advice that is. Thanks again. Gar Rhinus, folks, the batting so. stance guy. Well, that'll do it for me tonight on Sports Talk New York. I'd like to thank my guests, Gary Morgenstein and Gar Rhinus, the batting stance guy, my engineer, Brian Graves, and, of course, you guys for joining us. Rob Kramer coming up next, so please stay put. See you next on April 11th, folks. Till then, be safe, be well. Bill Donahue wishing you a good evening, folks. expressed in the previous program did not necessarily represent those of the staff, management, or owners of WGBB.